We all have our hopes and dreams. Some are attainable and reasonable, some push our personal boundaries, and may even affect the comfort of those around us. When Blanche's father, Big Daddy, comes to town for a visit, he has a surprise for her. He's going to be a country singer. This news doesn't leave Blanche excited for Big Daddy. Instead, she's concerned for his mental health. While Blanche battles her father, Sophia battles the neighbors when their tree falls into the lanai. Will Sophia's evil eye cast a spell? Will Big Daddy make it as a singer? Will Rose ever stop talking about her dad in a mayonnaise costume? Let's find out together in today's episode, Big Daddy. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never Starting out in the kitchen, we're with Sophia, who's pouring a few glasses of their beloved orange juice while wearing her green and blue checkered dress and a yellow apron. When Dorothy enters, wearing a striped wrap top thing, I've really kind of run out of ideas of how to even describe her clothes, she's handed a glass from Sophia, who asks her to try the beverage she just poured. Upon tasting it, Dorothy is clearly disgusted. Why? because she's just been served expired juice that Sophia made her try as an unwilling guinea pig. For about 30 years, I have worked for my mom's cleaning business. Yes, I even tagged along and did some dusting as a child. I continue to do one job that we've been contracted with for many, many, many years, which involves cleaning the kitchens of a local company. This includes wiping up the spilled foods in the microwaves and throwing out the mold-growing lunches long forgotten in the fridge. Nowadays, I get to throw out everything that's been left, but we used to go by the best buy, use buy, or expiration date, which always bothered me because it was so wasteful. Fun fact, the only foods required to have an expiration date are baby foods and baby formulas. Everything else is just a suggestion. So if your food is a couple of days past the date, if it smells fine and it isn't moldy, you're probably fine to enjoy it. I say probably because I don't need some dummy to eat green chicken and then call me with a hospital bill. Commenting on how tired her mom looks, Sophia explains it's because Rose kept her up. There had been a storm through the night. Seeking the comfort and love only a mother could provide, she ended up at Sophia's door begging to be let into her bed, just like Sal used to do. In Sal's case, it wasn't until he paid Sophia's father in a donkey and put a ring on her finger that he was allowed into the bed. In Rose's case, she was just told to get the hell out of there. Making their way to the living room, the Petrillo women are met with Rose, who is coming out of the hallway in a head-to-toe light blue mom outfit, complete with cropped pants and a white undershirt, and wishes to explain her behavior from the previous night. As she starts going on, we get one of Sophia's most loved and usable lines, Excuse me, have I given any indication that I care? Before Rose can be offended, Blanche girls, girls herself into the conversation with big news, big daddy news. Her daddy, big daddy, is coming for a visit. 
In her yellow pants and shirt with an almost hand-painted floral blazer, pink plastic earrings, and multi-episode appearing yellow purse, Blanche is in a tizzy that her daddy will be there the next day. Dorothy is just in shock that she knows someone, an adult woman, who calls her father not only daddy, but big daddy. I have my own theories about women that call their dad daddy past the age of eight. How do you feel about that, daddy? I mean, Coco? I don't care for it. It's it's gross. <laughs> Full stop. No other no other conversation uh, necessary, I think. I get that it might be a Southern thing or maybe a family thing, but even as a kid, if I heard a friend that was like, you know, 12, 14 into high school being like, Daddy, it's like, oh, no, that's, that tells me everything I need to know. Red flag. <laughs> but that moniker isn't reserved just for kin of the man. Everyone in town loves and respects him so much, they all call him that. I would not be participating in that, I don't think. I don't even call my own daddy, daddy. Big Daddy is so respected back home, Blanche can recall growing up with visitors that would make their way to Twin Oaks, the name of their plantation, I mean house, just to ask the advice of the mighty, powerful Daddy. Of course, when this would happen, the men would talk business while the women retired to the yard, sipping mint juleps under the magnolia tree while exchanging pie recipes. May I, may I, oh, hey, hey Alicia, it's Coco. Hi, Coco. May I try out an alternative to Big Daddy? Oh, okay, a different name. Large Father. <laughs> Is that what you wish to go by for this episode instead of Coco? I can't hear you. Large Father? Yes. <laughs> Hearing the corny, stereotypically Southern story Blanche is sharing, Dorothy can't help but ask if the farmhands would break into a song. Well, we know what she means by farmhands. Oh, boy. The song Dorothy references is called Cotton Fields. It may sound a little funny, but you didn't make very much money. And the whole cotton field at home. It was originally written and performed by blues performer Huddle Ledbetter, who went by Leadbelly in 1940. Singing about being home with his mama in the cotton fields and conditions that would make cotton picking difficult, it's clear what Dorothy is implying with her question. It should come as no surprise that this blues song by a black man in the 40s about picking cotton in the South was then covered by the Beach Boys and Credence Clearwater Revival. Oh boy. Blanche confesses, okay, maybe it wasn't all that idyllic, but Big Daddy is still a father to everyone in town. Rose and Dorothy are left unsure of how exactly to take that, Rose thinking literally, of course, that he must have slept around. As Blanche excitedly exits the house, she tells the girls she wants to get a few things so Big Daddy can feel right at home. Sophia gives us an oh boy, but not in her usual insensitive manner. Rather, she earns this one for calling out, well, the entire South, I guess. As Blanche starts rattling off her list of what to get for BD, short for Big Daddy, Sophia suggests the touch of asking the family across the street to tar and feather their lawn jockey. That's because they had a black lawn jockey, or Jocko. Saying they could tar and feather it was in reference to the public torture used by white supremacists, primarily in the South, when lynching black people. According to the Jim Crow Museum of Racist Memorabilia with Ferris State University, there are two stories about the black lawn jockey that most people believe. 
one being that it was modeled after a groomsman that protected George Washington's horses so diligently he died from the elements. I'm not quite sure that should be celebrated. The other is that they were used as directional guides for the Underground Railroad, holding secret codes to let escaping slaves know if conditions were safe. While the university claims there is no solid proof to the history of either of those theories, they acknowledge there were over 200 years of slavery, so it's not impossible for that to have happened at some point, it just wasn't well documented. Now that the storm has passed, Rose sees herself out to the lanai as she loves the fresh air after bad weather. Sophia recommends that she pulls some weeds while she's out there. That suggestion comes from the fact that she promised Dorothy that she would get the weeding done, so that's what she's doing. Before Dorothy can take another sip from her taupe mug, Rose comes running back inside, screaming for the girls to come out. When they do, they find the storm knocked over a large palm tree, sending it fronds first into the lanai. It turns out this isn't just a decorative tree the ladies placed in their yard. It actually belongs to the neighbors, the Bartons, and Mr. Barton is making his way through the side gate to inspect the damage. Playing Mr. Barton is Gordon Jump. Being a great character actor, he had some spots on shows like Get Smart, Green Acres, Brady Bunch, Bewitched, Mary Tyler Moore, but he is best known for his longer runs on shows like Soap, Love Boat, and Growing Pains. Coco, you know some dark history about a role Gordon had in 1983. I remember this from reruns many times. There's an episode of Different Strokes, which is an old sitcom about two boys that are adopted by a rich white guy. Two little black boys. Two little black boys. And there's an episode where I don't remember the plot of it. They go to a bicycle shop and the bicycle shop owner, played by Gordon Jump, spoilers, it turns out he is a a sex predator and he's like taking topless photos of the boys or trying and trying trying to get He's like grooming Arnold. Them. He's trying to get Arnold to get in there. I think his uh, Arnold's friend Dudley mm. is going to this shop and he's already kind of been groomed by the guy and then Dudley's trying to like recruit Arnold to also take some Tarzan photos or something like that. This is an infamous well it's a two part but it's an infamous oh. episode from I mean sitcom television ever. Oh yeah, I did I didn't know it was a two parter. Mm-hmm. I guess yeah, it's but it's stuck with it stuck with me all this all these many years later. Yeah, so it was really known because they it was something that hadn't really been talked about, let alone portrayed. Stranger they, danger, right? Yeah, like, yeah. And they kind of portrayed it. They kind of showed like this is grooming and this is, you know, this is what a pedophile may do, kind of a thing. So because it was so controversial and intense, really, you said it actually ended up affecting his career. I've read that he was typecast after that and struggled to get roles because people only saw him as that or they think that audiences would only see him as that. Mm. So so he got stuck as like the creeper guy. I think so. Yeah. But you know what? If if you if you just like lean into that, great career. I mean, yeah, you could have a lot of great roles. And then if you're not a jerk or a creep, every time you meet a fan, they would be pleasantly surprised. Oh, yeah. He be was like, a delight. Wow, he was the nicest person. Yeah. So that's the way to do it, guys. Get famous, play a creep. When the ladies ask if the tree falling caused any damage on his side of the wall, Mr. Barton scoffs. Nope. And when Rose tries to imply the tree belongs to him, he scoffs even harder. <laughs> nope. This is your problem. 
Long story, as short as I can make it, this reminds me of the time my parked car was hit while being parked in front of my house by a car that had been leapt out of by a woman who was searching for her dog, and upon seeing it, hopped out and left it in neutral. Her car then rolled down the street, eventually crashing into my car and pushing it way down the road. When she finally arrived to explain to me how two empty cars were in a very bad accident, she left it with, Welp, guess it's just one of those situations where you take care of your car and I'll take care of mine. I gave her a Mr. Barton-approved response. Mm, nope. As he makes his argument that the tree is Wait, not... Sorry to barge in here, ma'am. You're never barging, Coco. Can you tell us... Give us a resolution, please, for that, that oh. tale. <laughs> you can't just... Yes, I'm sorry. Started so. and not finish. My <laughs> God. <laughs> Uh, luckily, because I was young, I was in high school and my parents were out of town and I was like partying to some shark week. Um, the lady tried that. And then by then all the neighbors had come out because it was so loud. And when she tried to do that, they all backed me up, too. They're like, absolutely not. <laughs> that is not the case. And so I got all her information and she got me a, a fresh new car. Well, not a new car, but, a, you know, fixings, new bumper and stuff. Ooh. And then um, a mere weeks later, I was leaving a school football game and was trying to call in to win some Deftones tickets. And I drove at about two miles an hour, my brand new bumper into the hitch of the truck in front of me. And because of where it hit, it set off the airbag. And when your airbag goes, the fire department has to come check on you. So as my entire school was leaving the football game, I was on the side of the road with my shirt up as the officer, as the paramedics and firefighters were poking my belly don't phone and drive everybody i mean that's the lesson there don't hop out of your jeep if it's a manual <laughs> don't leave it in neutral and don't try to use your phone while you're driving even at one mile an hour As he makes his argument that the tree is not his property, Mrs. Barton arrives, frantically concerned about their tree, totally blowing up Mr. Barton's argument. Mrs. Barton is being played by the adorable Peggy Pope. She's as cute as her name. She, too, had roles on shows like Bewitched, Rhoda, Empty Nest, and Mork and Mindy, and she was in 9 to 5 the film and television adaptation. She also had a run on Soap, Barney Miller, and St. Elsewhere. I wonder if Lily caught that episode. In all, she had 69 credits to her name. Nice. Na -na 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 nice. Dorothy does a much nicer thing than I think most neighbors would do. She offers to split the cost of having the tree removed, which if the tree was on their property, I'm pretty sure they could say it all falls on the neighbor who owned it. Dorothy does a much nicer thing than I think most neighbors would do. She offers to split the cost of having the tree removed, which if the tree was on their property, I'm pretty sure they could say it all falls on the neighbor who owned it. But this jerk won't even take that deal. Instead, it's tough luck for the ladies as he grabs his wife and makes his way for the gate. Sophia yells out, stopping him, providing a friendly reminder that this is his problem and he will need to take care of it before asking if he understands in Italian. Capiche? Mr. Barton then oh boys right in front of the girls by using the blanket statement, boy, you Italians sure have a temper. Don't even get Sophia started on his tone of voice. So she does the only thing she can. She curses him by pointing her index and pinky fingers at him like a devil horn hand. With credit originally given to Ronnie James Dio of the metal band Dio, it was in 1979 he first used the devil horn hand signal when he took over for Ozzy Osbourne as the lead singer of Black Sabbath. Don't dream of women, 
This gesture solidified him as rock royalty. However, he always credited his grandmother, who was Italian, who would use the gesture towards him as a protector from evil spirits. So the creation goes to his grandmother and all Italian grandmothers, it sounds like. But the use in heavy metal actually goes to Jinx Dawson of the band Coven. She and her bandmates used the same hand gesture on their album from 1969. That's right. Rock on, ladies. Unsure of how to take Sophia's gesture, Barton requests clarification. Oh, what was that? It was just the evil eye cursing you until you get the tree taken care of. Good luck. Unscared and unfazed, the Bartons leave. Dorothy is upset that her ma did that, only making the situation more tense. I know how she feels. We're kind of dealing with not the best neighbors right now, and as much as I want to say something, I'm also kind of scared of having a really bad neighbor situation. Maybe I'll just try the devil horns trick. Confronted, Sophia reassures Dorothy she wasn't trying to aggravate the situation. She was really cursing the guy, just like she did with the Super Bowl in 1969. This was only the third Super Bowl, and it featured the New York Jets taking on the then-Baltimore Colts. With the Jets expected to lose by a lot, and Sophia being in New York, so she and Sal were probably fans, she makes a good point as to the power of her curses. Her curse must have worked because the heavily favored Colts lost big time. Ending with a score of 16-7, to it was a shock to everyone when the Jets walked away victorious. It's a new day and Rose is entering the living room from the kitchen in a pink dress. Carrying flowers, she walks past Sophia who is doing cross-stitch in a denim dress and blue cardigan when the attention is drawn to the door as Dorothy comes through it wearing white pants and a white shirt with another overcoat thingy. This time in golds and browns. She's come home with a copy of the property lines for their house. Sure enough, the tree in their yard came from Mr. Barton's. Sophia thinks pursuing legal action is a waste of time. Pointing to herself while referencing staying with the curse, Dorothy responds, Well, I have all these years. This starts what I can only describe as an Italian standoff. Dorothy staring down her mother, who is holding up but not quite brave enough to aim them at Dorothy, devil horn fingers. Giving in to the glares of the home, Ma, Sophia slowly puts her hand back down. Then Blanche enters the room. She's dressed like a My Little Plantation American Girl doll in a light blue dress with ruffled sleeves that hang on her shoulders, a tight corset-like chest with a rose in the middle and a matching hat. Nearly floating through the room, yet always in need of validation, Blanche asks how she looks. Like the night hostess at Denny's, responds Sophia. Okay, while the tight chest and light blue color are pretty accurate to those old uniforms, I'd say she looks more like one of the chickens on the steamboat at the end of the old version of Splash Mountain at Disneyland. This ridiculous outfit is, of course, to remind her father of his favorite dress of hers, the one she wore on her 16th birthday. I don't know how normal that is. I don't think my dad could tell you a dress I've worn if you paid him. I'm not sure I could tell you a dress I've worn, but I do know what I would remember if my father was way too into my sweet 16 dress. Not really an oh boy, but definitely a... Ew, daddy. <laughs> I was hoping for a cocoa oh boy, but I'll take that. <laughs> Ew, daddy.
With a ringing of the doorbell that made my dog bark because they don't have the mute all doorbell noises as a feature yet on Hulu, we know the big man himself has arrived. Before opening the door, Blanche reminds everyone that her father is nearly regal and she begs of them to stay on their best behavior. Well, not all of them. That message was clearly meant for Sophia. Opening the door in that blue nightmare of a costume dress and saying, Where's my daddy? Blanche is stunned to find Mr. Barton on the other side. He doesn't seem shocked to have walked into either the strangest family greeting or the most upsetting role-playing. He's focused on finding the old lady. Without fear or hesitation, Sophia rises with a, You looking for me? Dorothy intervenes, bringing up the property line map. Again, it's not why he's there. He knows Sophia let the air out of his tires. While the girls defend Sophia, she doubles down her curse, pointing the horns at him once more. She doesn't say she didn't do it, but she does imply it was the curse doing its job. Back to the map, Dorothy points out that the tree is Mr. Barton's problem. He responds in a reasonable adult manner by ripping the paper up and throwing it in the air. Thinking Sophia messed with his car, he's going the tit-for-tat route in his problem-solving. Heading for the door, he gives a final suggestion. Sue me, Dorothy screams back. We will. There's kind of a funny moment, Coco, I don't know if you caught this, when she slams the door and then she's like, do you believe that jerk? And her voice kind of like, it doesn't crack, it just goes really high. That jerk! And she kind of kept talking after that. But the audience was really caught up in that. Like they could have, like I wish she had noticed that and maybe left room for a pause to kind of let everyone giggle at how worked up she was because I think it was just her acting. Do you remember that part at all? I did not notice that part. Never mind. The joke! Her voice lowered, but her temper still piping hot, the doorbell rings once more. Assuming it's Mr. Barton coming back for further productive conversation, she opens the door enraged, asking, What is it, mouth? Before realizing the man on the other side is now Big Daddy. Luckily, his refined palate can forgive a mistake as such, and he jokes that back home he would have received a how-do. Blanche makes her way to the door in a sweeping motion. After an embrace where, Coco, you really enjoyed how Big Daddy kind of jiggled his hat. I've never seen a, a hug like that that's sort of, it's like his hand, his, <laughs> I'm trying to describe it. Well, because he goes and he puts his hand kind of on her lower back, but he's holding his hat still. And instead of like tapping her with the hat, he just kind of rocks it up and down a little bit. Each tip of the hat is like hitting her back kind of and her bum. Her. I wonder if that's just that he, maybe it's like I have a hat in my hand. Maybe. I, I, I got to be doing something or like if I'm <laughs> hugging you, I'm going to, I got to move my hand. My acting is all about my hands, man. It's him saying that. <laughs> <laughs> if they don't wiggle the hand, they won't know it's my hat. And the Oscar for Best Hand Acting goes to... So after that embrace, the compliments start. Her shiny hair, her river blue eyes, her smile better than anyone else's. It's no wonder Blanche's standards are so unreasonable. Dressed in his best Colonel Sanders cosplay is Murray Hamilton as Big Daddy, although he is quite petite. Oh, sure, he did a ton of TV shows. He was Mr. Robinson in The Graduate. He was in The Way We Were and Amityville Horror. But what he is most known for and personally loved for was his role as the irritable mayor in Jaws. This is not the time or the place 
to perform some kind of a half-assed autopsy on a fish. And I am not going to stand here and see that thing cut open and see that little Kentner boy spill out all over the dock. His role as Big Daddy would be one of his last as he passed away a mere four months after it aired in 1986. Making his way across the living room to Sophia, the compliments continue to flow as Big Daddy starts his poetic detail of kind of fetishizing Italian women. His extreme niceties have Sophia feeling like they might not be the most genuine or perhaps he's just full of bull. That's why she says you need boots to listen to this guy, just like you'd wear if you were working on a farm. On to meet the besties. With Rose, his compliment is that she looks like Miss Dinah Shore. You gotta give a little. Take a little. And let your poor heart break a little. I mean, I guess they're both blonde and beautiful, but outside of that, I don't see a ton of resemblance. For Big Daddy, it was probably more so that Dino was from Tennessee, so it was probably one of the most beloved stars in the area. Dinah Shore was a radio star and singer who came to fame in the 1940s. She went on to have albums and even her own variety show. Accurate or not, Rose is flattered to be compared to Dinah's beauty. She even half rejects the comment, you're putting me on or you're kidding me. Blanche, always one to destroy anyone's happiness when she can, confirms Rose's rhetorical question. Of course he is. Dorothy starts their introduction with an apology about her initial reaction at the door. Big Daddy shrugs it off. It's nothing. Don't fret none, which means don't worry about it. Fret comes from the old English word for devouring something like an animal. And just like the emotion of fretting, the worry and anxiety are all-consuming. It's more of a southern thing, hence Dorothy's combination of the words into fret none. After meeting everyone, Blanche has no choice but to make it about herself again. What did Big Daddy have for her? When asked what he got for his daughter, Big Daddy specifies, Yes, I have a surprise for you, but it's not exactly tangible. Her response gets a laugh all its own. As she wears her childlike dress and spins her hat betwixt her fingers, she quotes Scarlett O'Hara from the book and film Gone with the Wind, giving her daddy an, oh, fiddle-dee-dee, which basically means, oh, man, or, oh, dang it. Maybe it's Rose's subconscious knowledge that the phrase fiddle-dee-dee came from Gone with the Wind that makes her tell everyone she feels like she's in the famously Southern film. Unwilling to say no to his daughter, Big Daddy spills his big secret. The reason that he's in town? It's because he's performing at the Sagebrush Club the next night, singing country music specifically. That piece of news was the surprise Big Daddy had for Blanche, but she can't understand why he would invite the girls to go see him. He has a pretty simple and obvious answer. They might enjoy it. Trying to better understand where his sudden love of music and need to perform came from, Blanche asks again, Why are you singing? Receiving a laugh only because the character of Big Daddy seems silly in general, let alone as an older man wanting to sing, he says he's singing because he must. It's his calling. But for now, he's going to go check in with the club about the plan for his performance, and he'll be back later. Left behind in shock, Blanche cannot believe her daddy is wanting to be a singer. In public. Rose can't believe they were all so lucky to get free concert tickets. Dorothy brings Blanche in from off the ledge, Mr. Terrific style. 
If you're concerned about him performing, just talk to him. You don't need to be all dramatic and call your siblings and act like he's had some sort of mental health issue. He's just a guy pursuing his passion, not a comforter that's lost his stuffing, as Blanche so delicately puts it. Just like she did with her niece, Blanche fell asleep on the couch waiting for Big Daddy to come home. Surely she was using the bow from her dress as a pillow. She's wearing her classic night set of a light purple blue silky robe and a nightgown with white lace flowers on the collar. Making his way into the house with the grace of a drunken frat boy, Big Daddy clangs his guitar as he turns on the lights to find his daughter on the couch. Luckily, he didn't bump the vase. Big Daddy apologizes for waking Blanche, but she points out that she wanted to talk to him anyway. He's excited to hang out. He even offers to play her one of his new songs. He's also very realistic about where he's at. He's learning as he goes, and he's got a long road ahead of him, but singing has been fun and fulfilling. He knows he'll get there, and when he does, there will be an audience for him. Concerned, Blanche points out that her daddy is talking about his hobby of singing like it's his job, it's his career, which he agrees with because it is his new career. He's clearly not young, so maybe he was able to retire rich and can sustain himself with that money while finding himself as an artist. To prove to his daughter how much it means to him, Big Daddy breaks into his... song. His little ditty starts out pretty rough. His fingers struggle to find the chords, his smoke-fueled, cancer-filled lungs struggling to push the notes through his rattling vocal cords. It's not great. But he picks up the pace, and the playing gets better, and it actually ends as a cute little song. Nothing that's going to be on the radio, but nothing so bad he shouldn't at least try. Upset at what she feels is her dad's lack of talent, Blanche is open about her feelings regarding his performing. He's too old. He's too refined to end up in some honky-tonk. In this usage, Blanche means a dingy bar with loud, rhythmic music where people like Patsy Cline got their start. Because of places that were called honky-tonk, the music that came out of them created their own genre with the same name. One of the most famous honky-tonk singers is also mentioned in this conversation, Hank Williams. All the people say Just another guy on the lost highway Known for lovesick blues and Lost Highway, one of his most well-known honky-tonk songs is Your Cheatin' Heart. Hearing his daughter call his newfound passion silly and nonsensical, Big Daddy stands up for himself, both literally and figuratively. He tells her not to sass him or to talk back in a defiant manner. She begs his forgiveness. I wasn't being sassy, just pointing out that you should go home and get some rest. That's when Big Daddy really breaks some news. He can't go back home. He sold his home and things. He needed money to be out on the road. In a future episode, we learn how upset Blanche gets about her grandmother's house being torn down, so it's kind of interesting that they didn't write for her to be more hysterical about the loss of Twin Oaks. That's not to say Blanche doesn't get pissed. She calls Big Daddy's singing foolish and a disgrace to the family. Hearing the ruckus, Dorothy and Rose emerge from their bedrooms into the hallway just in time to hear Big Daddy tell Blanche she's the one who's gone crazy. Embarrassed by his and his daughter's behaviors, B.D. apologizes to the ladies before grabbing his guitar and making his way to the door. Pausing before leaving, he points out that the only things lacking from making this moment the perfect country song would be a train whistle in the background and some rain falling. 
It's a lighthearted moment for the audience to laugh at as Blanche is left in near tears. We're still in the living room as Blanche is panicking about the obvious fact that her father is going through some sort of crisis. Be it age-related or mental health, he is unwell. Reality queen Dorothy points out that it probably isn't that serious. Never one to not let something be dramatic, Blanche assures her, he's not just on a lark or doing this for fun, this is serious. Everything is sold and gone. Blanche never imagined she'd be in the position of caregiving for her father. He's Big Daddy for crying out loud. Taking their positions at the kitchen table, Rose shares that when she thinks of her daddy, she pictures him dragging a large tuna down Main Street. Not a real one, of course, one made out of flowers for the Founders' Day Parade. Then again, who doesn't picture that when they think of their father? Why was it that there was a tuna float in a Founders' Day parade? Because according to Rose, the founder of St. Olaf, Hugenflugerberg and Herberberger or something, was also the man that was the first to can tuna in its own juices. Also according to Rose, she was at that parade as it was St. Olaf's 50th anniversary. But in real life, that would have been in 1924, before Rose had even been born. You can't blame the writers, though. This was in the days before Google. So off went the parade, Rose's dad pulling the prize tuna behind his newest tractor dressed in a mayonnaise costume. Rose paints quite the visual of her small mayonnaise-dressed father riding a tractor, pulling a huge flower-covered tuna through town. When Blanche thinks of Big Daddy, it isn't a moment like with Rose. It's kind of an overall feeling of having been loved and having him around. She just didn't think she'd ever have to be the one to care for him probably because she's never really taken care of anyone else before. It's the next night, and that means it's time for the Big Daddy Show. Rose is re-wearing her beautiful dress with long stripes of colors. It looks like a floral, earth-toned rainbow painting. Blanche is in a light pink, lightweight dress. Sophia's on the couch in a yellow dress with a small floral pattern. And Dorothy is in a sensible white pant, white shirt combo with a, as Coco put it, sort of purple, sort of green, sort of Riddler overshirt. <laughs> Riddle me this. Rose double checks with Sophia. This could be fun. Why don't you join us? But to Sophia, the idea of what Rose finds fun and what she finds fun are very different things. Almost to the door herself, Blanche answers it when there's an unexpected ringing of the bell. It's the Bartons again. And again, with fury and without permission to enter, Mr. Ellen, I mean Barton, bursts into the house and demands to see the witch, a.k.a. Sophia. In khakis, a checkered shirt, and red cardigan, Leonard, as we've learned Mr. Barton's first name to be, is boiling mad. Speaking of, Mrs. Barton, in her light blue sweatsuit, reminds him to calm down so he doesn't get another boil on his butt. A boil is similar to a zit in look and pain, but instead of coming from the pore, a boil comes from bacteria or can sometimes form in small wounds, or in this case, from a curse. Ew, daddy. Mrs. Barton begs him to not call her a witch as he'll only suffer more consequences. Leonard asks his wife to shush before falling to his knees at Sophia's side. He can't sleep. The clocks are all wrong. His golf clubs are missing. He can't eat. And as Dorothy points out, thanks to the boil, he can't sit. The begging works as Sophia gives him one demand. The tree is gone. He agrees he'll take care of it the next day. 
Placing her hand in front of her mouth, Sophia makes an odd gesture. No, Leonard, that wasn't her removing the curse. It was that asparagus she had for dinner, and to put it as Sophia would, it was repeating on her. <laughs> to really lift the curse, she snaps her fingers in front of his face, and he makes a bolt for the door. Glanis, ugh, Mrs. Barton, waits behind for a moment. She apologizes to the girls for her husband's garbage behavior, and she admits that she was the one who did all those things to him. Except for the boil, of course. That was just lucky. Coming back to grab his wife, Leonard extends an olive branch to the girls. If there's anything he can do to make things better, please let him know. Dorothy has one thing right away. When you go out in the morning to get the paper and you're in your robe, could you please wear some underwear? Sounds like Dorothy's seen more of Mr. Barton than just his tree roots, if you know what I mean. Once the Barton drama was over, the ladies leave and end up in a country bar full of longhorns, saddles, and cowboy hat-wearing patrons. Rose is taken aback by the whole scene, asking if everyone there was a real cowboy. In Miami. Sure, says Dorothy. That's why they all have cowboy hats, drink wine spritzers, and drive Volvos. That's her nice way of saying, of course they aren't. Real cowboys wear cowboy hats, drink beer, and drive trucks, I guess? Dorothy asks Blanche about how to find their table. Given the grubbiness of the place, she assures them she has no idea. She's never even been there before. But that lie falls apart pretty quickly once the cowboys in the room start passing by her, recognize her, and greet her by name. Of course, instead of owning it, she lies some more, saying the museum had a Christmas party there once. Right. Hearing cheering in the distance, Rose asks what could be going on. Blanche, again, who hasn't been there, says, oh, there's a mechanical bull in the back. She only knows that because she read about it in the paper. That's what she means by the Sunday supplement. It was always this little added part that kind of had art events and music events and different things going on in your neighborhood. Confused, Rose asks what someone would do with a mechanical bull. Dorothy, always one to not give a straight answer, says, you introduce it to a mechanical cow. The rest of that sentence, then you have a mechanical bovine army that is unstoppable and unrideable. Finally finding someone that works at the bar, Blanche asks the waiter about her table. He checks his list, but she's not on it. Still acting today, Gary Grubbs, the waiter, has nearly 200 credits to his name. Name it, he's been in it. Chips, Happy Days, Charlie's Angels, M.A.S.H. He might be best known as Harlan Polk from Will and Grace. And of course he was on La La. When Blanche gives her maiden name and daddy's last name of Hollingsworth, the waiter now knows who she is. He even asks, you aren't here to see Big Daddy Hollingsworth, are you? Which, if you already have a name like Big Daddy, I don't think you need to ask the last name. It turned out there was an earlier show, and I guess the plan had been for Big Daddy to get warmed up and for the ladies to come to the second show. But after his first performance, the second was canceled. Knowing her daddy must have been heartbroken, Blanche goes on a hunt for him backstage. Left alone, the fillies, I mean the ladies, get hit on by a cowboy that somehow thinks calling them young horses would be a turn-on. Played by Tony Frank, a real Texan, the cowboy role came easy to him. Leaning into his country roots, he had roles in Young Guns 2, Dallas, Lone Star, Varsity Blues, and Walker, Texas Ranger. And don't you know it? La la. 
Funny enough, if you read the names of his characters, a large percentage of them are just sheriff. Coco, I know you loved this moment because as this cowboy is twaddling on about, I'd put your saddles around my campfire and ride you into the sunset until the coyotes, all that stuff. And Dorothy just kind of <laughs> screams at him. I love that, that yeah, with, uh, with Big Daddy, Sophia wasn't having any of it. And then uh, Dorothy, the daughter, meets another cowboy, southern, yeah. <laughs> sort of genteel type, and is just not having any of his rap, not interested at all. Yeah, Dorothy definitely learned from her mother, like, all right, <laughs> enough of that. Yeah, it was a really great moment. That, that was like probably the biggest laugh of the episode for me. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> Finding the green room Big Daddy is waiting in, Blanche goes in and is pouring the pity on her daddy. He doesn't really seem bothered by any of it, though. He realizes he made a mistake by trying a Beatles medley, which if he's talking about the medley from the end of Abbey Road, he's right. That cannot be done in that setting. I want to tell her that I love her a lot, but I gotta get a belly full of wine. Her majesty's a pretty nice girl, someday I'm gonna make a mine, oh yeah, someday I'm gonna make a mine. He sees the rejection as a learning experience, as a place for him to grow. Nearly shaking sense into her daddy, Blanche points out that it wasn't what he's saying, it was that he was terrible. Her unnecessary comment gets a surprising response. He knows. He never said he was amazing. He knows he needs work. Blanche sees his self-expression as being like a clown, but Big Daddy clarifies. He met Blanche's mother before he explored the world or explored his own creativity and expression. He wanted to start a life with her and thought they would raise a family and then the two of them could set out to see the world together. He knows his singing isn't the same as being on a tramp steamer or a boat adventure, but it's his. He lost his wife before they could achieve the dreams they shared. He didn't want to get to the end of his life having feelings of regret or being unfulfilled. And singing is something he's always wanted to do. So now's the time. He's happy. She should be happy for him, supporting even his most wild of dreams. There's so much beauty in this moment. Maybe it's because I'm waiting for the results of a COVID test after potential exposure, even though there were vaccinations involved all around. Or perhaps it's that it's Murray, the actor playing Big Daddy, died so soon after this. But the way he talks about living life and letting go of regret and forgiving those that weren't there for you while still marching to your own drum, it's so powerful and inspiring. It's really how I wish to live my life. Blanche finally realizes where her daddy is coming from. Hugging it out, she begins to sing his song into his ear as her way of showing she understands and now supports his dream. It ain't gonna worry me for long. It ain't gonna worry me for long. I'll, I'll get, get up, up in, in the morning and I'll still be singing my song. <laughs> <laughs> This episode actually reminded me of my first boyfriend who I broke up with after he said, the saddest thing I can imagine is dying right after retiring. I asked, why? Because you'd be so young? And he said, no, because you would have died before doing anything. And in that moment, I was like, we have different expectations of life. I am not sitting on my hands for the next 40 something years to wait to do something that's not guaranteed. Got to chase those dreams. That's right. There's, uh, yeah, you have to at least figure out whether or not it's a an avenue you need to go down. Yeah. Any further, you know, you'll know, you'll get there and you'll find out, but you do have to figure it out. Otherwise, yeah, you'll regret that forever. And I like that message of support, you know, you mm -hmm. love that person. You don't, maybe you don't agree exactly with what they're doing, 
But once you understand why, it, it I mean, it just makes so much more sense. When you get the contact, you, when you understand the emotional component of it, and that it's a lifelong dream for him, it makes all the sense in the world. Throughout the episode, I was feeling sort of like it was a frivolous plot, and it, and it really kind of was a bit throughout, but then at the end, it really hits. Well, you made a really good point that all of that could have been kind of corrected earlier on if they had both been better about communication. It's just a good thing to to recognize when to watch things now and be like, oh, well, that could have they could have maybe gone yeah. let less into their strife a little bit if they had just been like honest. Yeah, I guess that's the thing. Be straightforward with people. Yeah, and I and I do love too that he never seeks her validation as much as Blanche is constantly like validate me validate me validate me he never seeks that he's not even hurt when she's like you suck don't do this he just wants her support like that that you've got my back and you love me no matter what support and she I think confuses what that mean what that means and I think that's topical I mean that's something I'm going through in my personal life is figuring out for me what does support look like from the loved ones in my life you know I don't need you to come cheer me on or compliment me my god don't do that but you know what does that support look like and and how can it be achieved in a meaningful and real way I don't know man I can't get a single person I know to listen to anything <laughs> I make <laughs> When you have a dream, be it to sing in Madison Square Garden or to paint a picture no one else ever sees, there are no rules. As a podcaster, I'm often asked, how do you get started? Or when did you know the time was right? There are even questions about how long an episode should be or a season. When being creative, there are no rules. That's what's so fun about it. That's how we get new sounds in music, new styles in paintings, new forms of expression from so many people. One of the best things to come from quarantine has been seeing so many people choose a life of soul-fulfilling creativity as their way of making money instead of committing so much time to making money for other people. Big Daddy had it right. He had his dreams, they got a little derailed by life and derailed again by death, but he never hung them up. He never said, I'm too old, I'm not good enough, I missed my opportunity. Not at all. He just set the dreams aside until the right moment for him to step away from the comforts of his home and risk being mocked, laughed at, or not being respected in the way he was as a businessman. There are two big lessons to take away from Big Daddy. Number one, follow your dreams. No matter your age, talent, do what makes you happy. And number two, for those of us around creative people, let them express themselves. Don't let your personal fears keep someone else from facing theirs. So go get out there. Do that weird thing that lets you express yourself. Get that bad review. Have your gig canceled. Then keep trying and do it all again. You might get the next big thing. You may never be acknowledged. But you'll feel amazing knowing you did what so many people don't. You chased your dream. And the final lesson Make sure you keep your trees managed so you don't end up on people's court with your neighbor. Until next time, thank you for listening, and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we celebrate the end of Season 1 with The Way We Met.
Oh, I was waiting for you, Mr. Racket. Oh. Okay. <gasps> Here we go. Would you would you classify farts as racket? <laughs> <laughs> Her daddy, Big Daddy, is like is like. <laughs> okay, you ready, mommy? <laughs> yes, daddy. Oh, gross. <laughs> yes. This is large, father. Go on. Yeah, well, because they grow that way because of the wind, though. Oh, my goodness. Fun fact. Science fact. <laughs> Holy moly. They would think that audience was audiences. <laughs> Not so easy, is it? Her voice lowered, but her temper still piping hot. The doorbell rings once much more. Murder, misdemeanors. And mysteries. <laughs> we have to stop. Uh, coming up next <laughs> on the Mermaid Channel. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, all of that. Luckily, his refined palate can forgive a mis <sighs> mistake. I really have had enough of your mistakes. <laughs> the beaches will be open on the fourth of July. <laughs> This is a summer town with Mr. Dreyfus. His and balls, maybe his hole even. Wow. Uh. <laughs> Sorry. There and I used the word had because it's in the past. I can't go back to that moment. I can't go back. Okay. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.